0: Welcome to the Latter-day Freeman podcast, a podcast dedicated to building a movement of Latter-day Saints, united in defense of the principles of freedom and our inspired constitution. I am your host, Jacob Hibbard, and I am joined this evening by my fellow Freeman, by Jeremy Anderson from all the way up in Alaska, and special guest, Richie Angel from the People's Republic of California. Richie, thanks so much for being with us, and thanks for being here as well, Jeremy.
1: Of course, always a pleasure.
0: Yep. Glad to be so, here. folks, we are going to continue our discussion on the pillars of America. We, On episode two, we talked about the first pillar of America, individual liberty. And this week we'll be talking about the second, which is individual morality. And to help frame our discussion, I want to share a quote that you probably have heard before. It's, uh, it's quite a famous one. It gets uh, quoted, I would say, fairly often. And it's from uh, John Adams. Uh, and it was a letter that he wrote to the Massachusetts militia on the 11th of October, 1798, and he said, we have no government armed with power capable of contending with human passions unbridled by morality and religion. Avarice, ambition, revenge, or gallantry would bake the strongest cords of our constitution as a whale goes through a net. Our constitution was made for a moral and religious people. It is wholly inadequate to the government of any other. And like I said, that was John Adams. And to use this discussion, to use this quote to, to frame our discussion around individual liberty, I want to approach the question to both of you. Why do why does our constitution require a moral and religious people?
2: For me, the first answer there is because the constitution is founded on this idea of agency. And we built the constitution to allow people to do what they wanted to do but if people don't have any personal boundaries on what they're willing to do then they won't abide by the laws that we set up through the constitution um the foundation of the constitution is this idea that we'll be governed by law and not by the you know just whatever men say and if people aren't willing to accept laws and willing to abide by those laws, then there's no way to keep that um, keep that in check. And um, there, are, there are governments that are not founded on this idea of people actually being agents unto themselves and taking responsibility for their own um, actions. And those governments have to have large standing armies and secret police and um, a much different setup than what we're trying to create in America.
1: I like that point about, you know, the the worse that a people gets, the bigger the government needs to be to contain them. Um, but also, you know, the worse a people gets, people are governed by other people. And so the worse those people get, the worse their government is going to get, because that's just the pool of people that you have to pull from. One thing that James Madison famously said in the Federalist Papers is that uh, we have government because men are not angels, but I would contend that men are capable of becoming devils. And so you have to have, you know, at least some level of government in place. Um, First of all, you know, to to check our human nature, but also to check that level of, of devil that we might achieve. And if there are too many devils, the system is overrun. And like I just said, it's, you know, it becomes run by devils because that's just the people that you have to work with. And so we need to have this added measure of morality. It's not just enough to have, you know, the freedom to do whatever we want and government is there to fill in the gaps. We have to be able to trust each other. Ezra Taft Benson said at one point, when we speak of morality, we imply that a man is true to his word, true to his signature on a contract. If you're going to have a free society, you can't, you know, constantly be afraid that someone's going to stab you in the back, literally or figuratively. You can't be afraid that, you know, no one is ever going to be true to their word. You have to be able to trust that your fellow man, at least on a basic, root level, is going to deal with you fairly. Um, and so, you know, whether you have a taxpayer-funded social safety net or not, let's say you do have one, you need to trust that people are not going to take advantage of it. In major ways and if you're not going to have one you need to be able to trust that people are going to take care of those that fall through the cracks who do fall on hard times if you're going to have a functioning society no matter what policy you have you have to be able to trust the people around you and i think that like at its most basic level that's the kind of morality that 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 the founders were expecting
0: and i think to, to use the analogy that you used richie you have to operate on the assumption that not everybody, every person you're interacting with is a devil. I don't I don't think that, I don't think that you're saying this. I'm just making this to make saying this to make this explicit, that what you're not to have a functioning society, you don't have to function under the assumption that men are angels or that human nature is magically good when it's not. You just have to assume that not every person that you interact with is a devil. And the government exists there to punish. And to prevent and deter people from behaving like devils, or even when they're not behaving like devils, just because we're imperfect people, there's going to be friction to be able to settle those kinds of disputes between two people who are trying to do the right thing. There are still going to be problems that we need government to solve. Now, and I think what kind of what you were describing, both of you, kind of leads to a question of when John Adams is talking about more, about morality, and when we talk about morality, are we talking explicitly just about morality in the sense of? What you find in your for strength of youth pamphlet, like like religious morality, or is there a higher morale, like a different kind of morality that's a little bit more universally understood that's being talked about, or is that an enforced either-or in your guys' minds?
2: So when you when you read this quote, actually the word that stood out to me the most, and obviously I've been through the quote a number of times, but this time around, the word that stood out was that word religious, because he says the constitution was made for um, only for a moral and religious people, it is wholly inadequate to the government of any other. So he actually distinguishes between morality and religion. And he says, we have to have both. When I started, when I was studying for this podcast, I looked up, you know, what is the the meaning of religion? The word, it comes from religar in Latin. And it's to bind to more or to t- tie back. And for me, as I was thinking about it, I think we need that, that, um, anchor to hold us to our morality. I think without the religious aspect to it, morality doesn't stand a chance in the, you know, the fires of, of life when hard times hit, unless you have that greater th- thing that you feel you're, um, obligated to your morality starts to deteriorate really quickly i've
0: been watching a lot of the lord of the rings and so i really wanted you to say the fires of mount doom right there Dude, i,
1: I thought the same thing i <laughs> thought he was going to say the fires of mordor and i i was so excited
0: so to to cast the ring into the fire a little bit further um i think it's also interesting that he makes the distinction between morality and religion and i think it kind of comes to a point that you were making, Richie. And so when I think of when he talks about morality, I'm thinking about natural law and natural law philosophy. We read in the Declaration, the laws of nature and nature's God. And this is, I think he's talking about the laws of nature in the sense that there are certain cosmic laws that are beyond the gospel is not the right word. And so I don't want to say it that way, but there are just these universal principles that govern everything and that God lives by them, too. And what those are in terms of government is, what, what is when is force justified and the source of our rights and that individuals have rights that are, that are individual, that come from God, not from government. And so I think that you know, we need to have a moral people in the sense that we need to have a people that believe that every individual has inherent worth and dignity, every individual possesses individual rights, and that have a moral belief that it is immoral for them to threaten each other With the threat of arbitrary, intrusive physical force to deny each other of their life, their liberty, or their property. And that's kind of the general morality that, that government exercise, that our constitution was built on. Those are the principles of morality of moral uses of force that governs government. But that needs to be supplemented and strengthened by religion in the sense that religion gives you the source of where that first morality comes from. It's not just enough to say, like some people say, we just have rights because we're human beings. It's no, we, we have rights because we are children of God. And that strengthens and gives the lasting power that's needed for that principle to have a, to, to really settle in our hearts. And then religion also then does what I think what you were saying, Richie, is it provides us with the sense that we need to fill in the gaps for the the, mis, the mistakes and bad things that happen in life in the sense of it gives me the principle upon which I act to then serve my neighbor when they're having a hard time so that then there's not pressure on society, like society doesn't then pressure government to go beyond morality and it's moral bounds to do things that it's not supposed to. I I uh...
1: Completely agree with that, but I wouldn't call that a supplement. I think that that is the foundation. You cannot have that definition of morality that you just provided without that religious understanding to underpin it. Because like you alluded to, there's often a conversation about, you know, whether uh, a society could be built up on an atheistic philosophy, um, whether this type of society could be built up on that. And the answer is no. And to me, the answer is pretty clearly no, because like you said, you have to understand what makes human beings special and what gives us these rights. It's not just that we have thumbs. It's not just that we have you know, uh, prefrontal cortexes. It is because we are created in the image of our God. And so the United States, as much as you know, we have freedom of religion and there's no establishment of religion and uh, no one is forced to believe in God, the United States as a government believes in God and recognizes the existence of God. Whether that's from the Declaration of Independence itself to the Pledge of Allegiance, One Nation Under God, to our national motto, In God We Trust, to swearing in any witness in any criminal trial, which is, so help me God, right? We acknowledge the existence of God at all levels, and we need to do that so that we can understand who the people around us are and why they have inherent worth. Then once you take that and apply it to morality, yes, we are you know because we're children of of God we're not inherently devils but we're also not inherently angels and and you know i can trust that they're going to be behaving in good faith, that they're going to behave honestly. And that's the kind of morality that I think it's speaking to is really just an honest sense of living. And it doesn't mean that they have to live all of the commandments or covenants that I adhere to as a member of the church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. We explicitly say in our 11th article of faith that we claim the privilege of worshiping Almighty God, according to the dictates of our own conscience and allow all men the same privilege, let them worship how, where, or what they may. So, you know, it is a sin to worship God the wrong way. It's a sin to not be a part of God's church, or at least it's not fulfilling the commandments as we ought to, yet we're explicitly allowing for that. We're not going to legislate that everyone join a particular church or even that everyone join a church. That's just not something we're going to touch. You know, pretty famously, members of our church don't drink coffee. We're not going to legislate that anyone who drinks coffee is going to jail. That's just not something that we're interested in doing. We're not trying to enforce that everyone live perfect lives. We just need the government to be there enough to ensure that we are dealing morally with each other, which I think is just that we are treating each other as children of God, respecting each other's rights and dealing in good faith.
0: And it's, it's a two-pronged approach. If you kind of think of like a pincer movement in, like in, a, in a battlefield, there's two prongs to it. And I think that government, in the sense, in its role of punishing violations of rights, uh, pre- prepare, uh, providing deterrence, you know, having the systems of law, the, the, the functions that it's supposed to perform, you know, the military, the police, the courts, that that is one way of protecting your rights. And then religion and morality is the second prong in the sense that it tries to convince people to not violate your rights. And that together, that gives you the assurance that I can in good faith interact with other people. I don't have to necessarily live in fear because hopefully number one, there are other people who who believe that I have rights. And at the very least, even if I don't, I know that there's a government that's going to either prevent the rights of violation or provide me with some sort of way to have restitution a process um, to recover whatever damages that I've gone through and thus to secure my rights and that purpose. And so it's this two prong approach. Another thing that I think that that religion does and having a moral and religious people does is that when we are sinful, eventually we don't want to have the consequences of our bad choices that I know when I make mistakes as much as humanly possible, I try to avoid the bad consequences. And if enough people are sinful and we don't have that religious um, society or, or people who are che- teaching about right and wrong and teaching the principle to know there are consequences that you can't escape we don't have that eventually people are going to look for ways out of their consequences and you know the easiest thing in society to try to avoid your consequences is to seize government and use it to try to avoid your bad consequence so if i've been a bad steward with my property and i've gotten myself destitute or i've made bad choices people then try to say okay i'm going to use the government to use against other people to prop up my choices. So they're going to, the government's going to become, I'm going to use my agent, the government, to plunder you to support my poor choices. Or I'm going to try to do this or that to somebody else to try to avoid my bad choices that violate their rights. And having a religious society um, where we have ideas of right and wrong and also of consequences and that consequences are important, uh, it prevents that or at least helps check that impulse that if run rampant, destroys, go, doesn't government will never stay in its lane um, if you don't check that. And religion does that.
2: I wanna pull in a, a quote here from Spencer W. Kimball. Um, he said, there ought to be a law, many say, when corruption raises its ugly head. And our answer is that there are laws, numerous laws which are not enforced. But our further answer is, that you cannot legislate goodness and honor and honesty. There must be a return to consciousness, consciousness of those values. Every nation, nation which has dropped out of sight can trace its downfall to the breakdown of its moral structure. There are no walls or forts which can protect a nation or a people from invasion, but the wall of righteousness. Um. I think that sums up fairly well kind of what we're trying to say here that um, ultimately if we want our society to hold together, we have to have morality. And I would say that unless we can tie that morality back to God, like you were saying earlier, Richie and Jacob, both our morality will deteriorate and fall apart. And I know I have, I have friends that would argue, um, well, you can be a moral and a good person, even if you don't believe in God even if you don't have that, um, that anchor, how would you guys respond to that?
1: I think it's absolutely possible, but I do think that those people who are moral in the face of not believing in God are making a lot of religious assumptions in who their fellow man is. Because I think at the end of the day, we aren't going to treat each other the way that the law expects us to treat each other in the United States, unless we recognize that we have rights endowed to us by our creator naturally, inherently upon being human beings. Um, and that there is nothing extra that, that makes us merit these rights. And so, yeah, you individually might not consciously believe in a creator, um, but I think that someone in that situation is still operating on those assumptions. And I think on the flip side, it can be very tempting for people to say, you know, to see a quote like that, that talks about how important it is for us to have religion or, or morals in our life and then take that and say, well, if it's that important, if society is going to fall apart, if we don't have that, well, then why not just enforce that people are religious and moral? Um, I think part of the answer is like you said, uh, or like Spencer W. Kimball uh, alluded to, you can't just legislate that everyone behave morally and suddenly everyone will behave morally, but also, um, you know, to the extent that the government can uh, encourage morality or, or anything like that, uh, we still have to be respecting of other people's rights. Ezra Taft Benson said, I believe that God has endowed men with certain inalienable rights as set forth in the Declaration of, Pen- of Independence and that no legislature and no majority, however great, may morally limit or destroy these that the sole function of government is to protect life, liberty, and property, and anything more than this is usurpation and oppression. So he's saying that we cannot morally vote to infringe on people's rights. So even if someone's justification for infringing on rights is in the name of morality, that's a paradox because it is immoral to infringe on other people's rights. We need to encourage that morality, and that doesn't mean that the government can never be a part of that. In the Northwest Ordinance of 1789, literally the same year that we adopt the constitution, the government declared that religion should be forever taught and encouraged in public education, right? So we can have the government promoting certain things. Um, It doesn't mean that religion has to be silent, that churches have to be silent, or that religion must be taboo in government circles, but we cannot infringe on people's rights in pushing it on them Uh, Because for one thing, it violates their rights, and for another thing, it's not effective because people are going to push back against it.
0: Yeah, I want to go back to quickly. I'll answer what Jeremy said, then I want to touch on what Richie said. I think that someone who who someone can be a moral person without a religious foundation, but I think it's a sandy foundation. We think about the wise man and the foolish man. Yes, the wise man's foundation didn't last the storm, but it probably stood in a sunny day. It probably lasted most of the time. And I think that that's kind of the same thing for a moral foundation without God. Most of the time, you're probably going to be okay. However, when you come down to real storms and real pushback, um, I think that the, that the analogy that the Savior uses, the parable applies in that circumstance. Uh, and then to what Richie was just barely saying, um, so it, it kind of ring a couple of, of bells went off in my mind. Uh, I thought about a quote from Frank S. Meyer In his book, In Defense of Freedom. And he said, uh, Freedom can exist at no lesser price than the danger of damnation. And if freedom is indeed the essence of man's being, that which distinguishes him from the beast, he must be free to choose his worst as well as his best. And unless he can choose his worst, he cannot choose his best. And then he also says later in the book that no man can act morally unless he is free to choose good from evil. And so we are here on earth, as we talked about in episode two to make choices, to have the freedom to act, and to choose, to be able to choose right from wrong. Um, BH Roberts says that agency wouldn't be worth its name if it didn't allow you to fill your cup of damnation if you want to. What government does in this role is to make sure that when you're filling your cup of damnation, you're not spilling your damnation on me, or you're not preventing my ability to live righteously and that government properly constituted and what it, the role that plays in society. It makes sure that if Jacob's going to be sinful, he's got to stay in his circle of sin, of, his, of sin because as soon as I reach out and inflict my sinful behavior on you and on your rights, that's when government steps in. But if hypothetically I can be sinful and not, in fact, your ability to, to live the gospel, to make choices, impact your rights, Government enshrines my ability to be in that little sphere. And so it maximizes freedom of choice for everyone in society, as long as we're not infringing on each other's space. And I think you get that idea from uh, George Q. Cannon, President George Q. Cannon, talking about agency and liberty. He said, he said that uh, agency is not the right to do wrong, not the right to practice iniquity, not the right to trample upon his neighbor, to intrude upon his rights, but the right to do that which may seem good in his own eyes so long as he should not thereby interfere with the rights of others. And so you might think it's okay for you to behave in, like a heathen, but as long as you're not infringing on the rights of others, you're acting within your liberty and within your agency. And, and I think that from, from when we talk about the proper role of government and liberty, the government really doesn't have much of a role there. But I do think it can do, like what Richie was saying, that you know, individuals in government can and should use the bully pulpit and the position that they have to advocate for morality. Things like saying an opening prayer in the beginning of a session of Congress or when a, when a president participates in the prayer breakfast and talks about religion, that does not violate the First Amendment. The First Amendment just makes sure that the government can't put a gun to your head and say, kneel and pray to this person right now. I, I think that we should encourage and the expectation should be that also we, when we enter into the political sphere, should be bringing our religion with us and speaking in religious terms and talking about religion, talking about morality and making sure that the gospel is unchecked in its ability to influence society and to influence other people.
2: Yeah, I, I agree with you, Jacob. I, I feel like I have to push back just a little bit, though, Um You just said, you know, we should allow people, even elected officials, to go up and essentially demonstrate their religion and their um, devotion to their religion publicly, Um, even when they're acting in their office, even when they're acting in their political office. Recently, the governor of Utah um, put out a a declaration, and he um, declared the month of June to be um, Pride Month. And I know there was a lot of pushback against that um, from people in the state. And um, is that any different? Like, I, I kind of feel like that's the same thing. And he, he put out uh, an article in the Deseret News, the local newspaper, where he talked about his reasons behind that and essentially he was, he was saying, you know, I'm trying to promote, um, morality. I'm trying to promote good relations in our, in our state and in our government. And I feel like that was a good thing that I did. Um, but so I, I guess kind of what you're, what you seem to be saying is that's okay because he's, you know, it is his personal belief and he has that right to demonstrate it.
0: I'll answer really quick, but I want to hear Richie's thought on this. I oh, think I was- that I, I think that he did not go like I don't think he stepped outside of the proper role of government. I don't think he did something that was immoral. He did not make me. I did not because he decreed a Pride Month. I didn't have to put a rainbow flag on my yard. I didn't have to change my Facebook profile picture. Like, and so to me, I don't think that he did something more immoral in the sense of that's not the proper role of government because there's no teeth. There's no enforcement behind. That, from what I understand, it did not make it so that now I am celebrating Pride Month. I might, I might think it's an immoral stance from a religious perspective, but I don't think that what Governor Cox did went outside the proper role of government. I'm willing to be convinced otherwise. That's why I turn it over to Richie.
1: Well, I, I agree with you completely. I don't think that he stepped outside the proper role of government. But I think the proper role of the people in such a scenario is that if that doesn't represent them, they can speak up. And so you can have backlash and maybe, you know, the governor will learn from the backlash. Oh, I need to represent the people differently, or it simply comes to irreconcilable differences. Maybe he's not the right man for the job and they vote him out and replace him with someone else who will represent them better, whatever the issue is. Right. And, and I'm not saying you, you should or should not support what the governor did. Um, but I think that any government official should be able to express their, their own feelings on issues of morality like that. Um, the brethren have said many things to to that effect as well uh that we don't check our religion at the door including with politics that religious values as a basis for our political beliefs are just as valuable or just as uh just as credible or legitimate as any other basis for political views um that specifically comes from a talk by uh president oaks that he gave a couple decades ago uh, but then also looking at the founders themselves who said that it is the duty of all wise, free, and virtuous governments to countenance and encourage virtue and religion, or that those who are vested with civil authority ought to promote religion and good morals among all under their government. And if, uh, as the the quote went by, I believe he said it was George Buchanan, that people acting in their best conscience, uh, if that's what they believe good morals are, if that's what they believe virtue is, they absolutely have a right and maybe even a duty to speak to that. And if that doesn't represent the, the people under them, uh, the people are free to speak out about it.
0: I totally agree. I think that the criticism was the proper when we talk about checks and balances in government. That's a societal check and balance was the the fact that he had to defend his position um, was the proper response. And yeah, I, I agree with everything that Richie said.
1: Just like the fact that not everything wrong should be illegal, not everything that a politician does that I disagree with means that he stepped outside of the proper rule of government. Sometimes, you know, it means that you're not compatible with each other, uh, but that doesn't mean that you know we need to put enforcement mechanisms on it or restrain it in some way.
2: Thanks for letting me ask those questions. So I don't mean to hijack the conversation. Just. No, I thought it was a really
0: good point because I think it it puts the test on what we're talking about. And so I think we've covered really well, in a sense, and we've started to talk about the answer to this question. We've talked about how we don't promote morality and the limitations of government and, in some ways, the inappropriateness of using government. So then the question is, if morality and religion is important to our society, how do we uphold it? What is the proper way? What can we do? What should our listeners be doing? What and us as individuals be doing to uphold morality in society to keep this vital pillar in place?
2: Well, I, I think Richie brought this up earlier um about teaching religion in schools. Maybe it was you, Jacob. Um, no, I, I brought that, that up with the
1: Northwest Ordinance of 1789. Right. That so was definitely Richie.
2: There's another quote here. Um Benjamin Rush, who was a signer of the Declaration of Independence, he said, The Bible, when not read in schools, is seldom read in any subsequent period of life. The Bible should be read in our schools in preference to all other books, because it contains the greatest portion of that kind of knowledge, which is calculated to produce private and public happiness. Um, For me, that really resonates with all the scriptures in the Book of Mormon that say um, keep my commandments and, and you'll be blessed and prospered. I think it's really true that, yeah, we need to teach these things and we need to um, be talking about them in our schools and especially with our rising generations.
0: Yeah, I, I totally agree with that. One of um, the things that that I read that that really hit me hard uh, came from Elder Neil A. Maxwell in a talk he gave called Behold the Enemies Combined, and he outlines all these bad things that were happening in society and he talks and he says this and I thought that this was I really liked the way he frames this he says only reform and self-restraint institutional and individual can finally rescue society only a a sufficient number of sin-resistant souls can change the marketplace as church members we should be a part of that sin-resistant counterculture and I think that that's something that, that every one of us can do in our own homes and hopefully through our relationships with others and in societies, if the culture is rotten, we should try to be creating a sin-resistant counterculture and creating spaces and institutions. And when we talk about institutions, I'm not thinking like government institutions, but, you know, institutions, groups, you know, social expectations that are aligned with religious values. And when we, I just I love that idea of a sin-resistant counterculture. And that's something that, we, like I said, we can do in our own home by choosing the kind of movies and media that we consume, choosing the kind of businesses that we support with our dollar. I mean, part of the reason that Chick-fil-A is so darn popular, I mean, yeah, the chicken's good, but I think a lot of people really like it because people identify it with a part of a sin-resistant counterculture, that it's part of a counterculture that they want to be a part of. And I think that's something that every one of us can start doing immediately in our own lives, in our lives of our families and in who we associate with in the marketplace.
1: And I don't think that that has to necessarily mean that we're insisting that other people live by the standards that we want them to live by or that we want to live by ourselves. But it does mean that we have to fiercely stand our ground and say, you cannot make me violate my own precepts. Um, One of the things that I have been most impressed with in in terms of normalizing religious behavior over the last several years has been the influence of Muslim families in creating a market for modest clothing. Because in so many circumstances, uh, you would have all kinds of things where members of of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints would be asked to wear something immodest that they were raised to believe was immodest, that they knew was immodest. And they didn't really know how to stand their ground. And so they would just give into it. But then you have a Muslim culture, which is much more strict on that sort of thing. And now, you know, the, just the ability to buy modest bathing suits and modest prom dresses and all sorts of other things is exponentially greater uh, than it used to be. Because they, they said firmly, you don't have to live this way, but you cannot make me stop living this way. And I think that that's really what it is going to come down to with us, um, that we need to be sin-resistant in our lives, but not just privately. We can't be afraid to publicly live sin-resistant lives. And it doesn't mean we have to insist that of others, but we can publicly shine that light and set an example.
0: And what you're talking about is religious liberty. That's, you know, the Jack Phillips of the world or the L. Stutzmans that we have to ensure that government doesn't become the tool of sinful behavior being pushed on other people and creating that space. You no, know, we were stressing so much about making sure there was a space. At least I feel like I was really stressing the importance of making sure there's a space for people to be sinful. The, the opposite is true, if not more so, <laughs> that we have to definitely ensure that there is a space for people to live religiously, to be able to, to run your business in a way that, that aligns with your values. And I think that, I think the, the, the example of, of Muslims is a wonderful example that we can have an influence if we choose to. And I think so often we, we make compromises and I'm not saying that I'm perfect. I mean, Richie's going to hate this, but I've watched a rated R movie before <laughs> and you know, that, you know, while I'm sure it was an enjoy, some of those experiences were enjoyable, if I want to, to create a sin-resistant counterculture, I need to be more picky in the media I consume. And if we do that, we can create and live out our faith that way. Um, we can create those spaces where we real, we really are letting our light so shine. But you have to have a light and you have to have the space to lift your light up. And uh, ensuring religious liberty is protected allows you to lift that light.
2: I really like that example of the, the Muslim counter And the Muslim... Um example. And then also the counterculture idea also, because I think it highlights the fact that you have to have a group. You have to, it, it's something you do, um, by your own free will and individually, but you need a group of people who are willing to do it with you. And I think building that kind of a community where you go out and you find the people that have the same values as you do, because there are so many of them out there and you find them and you bring them together and you say, hey, nobody's making modest prom dresses. Um, let's start a business making modest prom dresses. Um, or, you know, nobody is making movies that I want to watch. You know, let's let's get some people together. Let's start making some movies that align with my values. Um, and it's not something that you can really do alone. It's something where you have to have other people involved
0: which again goes back to religious freedom and the right to gather and to associate as we choose. I mean, part of, you know, that we might be more that we might be unspotted from the world. I think also is by giving us the strength and the network that we need to do that. And when you take away the right to gather and just to freely associate, you really hamstring people's ability to develop a sin-resistant counterculture because otherwise you're just scattered atomistic uh, choices, which, are good choices, but the real power comes from when we're able to combine that through associating with one another. Well, I think this has been a really fantastic discussion about individual morality. I think we've covered a lot of different things, a lot of different uh, aspects of why it's important and how we can do a better job or, or be or let our light so shine. And I know for me personally, I, I feel convicted by my own words that I need to do better. Richie, I, I promise I'll try not to watch as many Radar movies uh, as I have in the past. Um, but I just wanted to close with this promise from the Book of Mormon about morality that I hope will inspire us and remind us what the stakes are in terms of this pillar of morality. This is from Ether chapter two, and it says this. It says, and he, speaking of God, had sworn in his wrath unto the brother of Jared that whoso should possess this land of promise from that time henceforth and forever should serve him, the true and only God, or they should be swept off when the fullness of his wrath should come upon them. And now we can behold the decrees of God concerning this land, that it is a land of promise, and whatsoever nation shall possess it shall serve God, or they shall be swept off when the fullness of his wrath shall come upon them. And the fullness of his wrath cometh upon them when they are ripened in iniquity. For behold, this is a land which is choice above all other lands. Wherefore, he that doth possess it shall serve God or shall be swept off, for it is the everlasting decree of God, it is not until the fullness of iniquity among the children of men that they are swept off. And I feel like I, I know that that's a, a warning and a message for us in our day. And that if we can do our part to build that sin-resistant counterculture, that we will not be swept off. That we will be protected. The promise of the Book of Mormon, if you are righteous, if you keep the commands, we will prosper in the land. And I know that we, as Latter-day Freemen, as members of, of Christ's Church, and as we combine with, the, with other like-minded people of good faith, we can prosper in the land and call down those blessings on our nation. All right, folks, we appreciate you spending so much time with us. Uh, If you haven't already, subscribe on YouTube, like this video, follow us on the many platforms of which where you can find us. We are on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, Podcast Addict, Breaker, Pocket Casts. Oh my goodness, I feel like I'm forgetting something. There's a lot of them. You can subscribe on all of them. Please do leave a review. Tell us how we're doing well. And if you have an idea or a topic that you'd like to see get covered in one of these episodes, you can contact the show on Facebook or on Instagram or on Twitter. We're on all three of those platforms, or you can send an email to us directly at latterdayfreeman76 at gmail.com. Well, again, Jeremy, Richie, thank you so much for joining me, joining us tonight. Richie is a special guest. We missed you, Tyson. Uh, We're sorry we didn't have you with us for this discussion, but we will see you all next week.